Welcome, everyone, to the 23rd episode of POV Crypto. I'm David Hoffman, here with my buddy Christian. Christian, how you doing? David, what a freaking day in crypto, man. Once again, here in Nashville, this time accompanied with another one of my co-workers, Mr. Brandon Green. Brandon, why don't you introduce yourself? Hey, guys. Uh, I'm Brandon. Excited to be on the show. Excited to be part of lucky number 2323, the Jordan episode. So uh, congrats, guys. This is, this is awesome. Brandon, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about how you got into crypto, what you're doing for BTC Inc., and maybe maybe tease maybe some of your political alignments with uh, the, the crypto world. Sure. Uh, so I actually have a funny way that I got into crypto. Uh, had no intentions of getting into it. David Bailey and Tyler Evans, who are the CEO and CTO of uh BTC Inc. went to college with me. Uh, They're in a program there with me, so I kind of knew them a little bit. The summer before I was supposed to start my full-time job with Anheuser-Busch, blessed be them, I had like this free summer, didn't know what to do, and I sent them a message saying, hey, do you need someone to move boxes around? Uh, They said, yeah, we can probably use some extra hand around the office. Uh, Why don't you just come on? And so I said, okay, never left. So uh, uh, with them ever since, fell down the rabbit hole, fell in love with, you know, the entire space and what's going on and all the excitement around it and uh, haven't looked back. Wow. Stumbling into a crypto job. You, so many people must be envious of that. Oh, well, uh, stumbling into a crypto bull run, actually. Uh, This was summer of 2017. This was May of 2017. Basically, I've gotten the best opportunity ever. I get to be like the right hand to David Bailey, who's literally one of the smartest people in the entire space. Uh, And if you go through his Twitter, which I recommend everyone does, uh, we'll get the link to it at the end. Uh, He is like correctly predicted almost exactly every single bull run, bear run since uh, like 2013 or something like that within like the closest I've seen of anyone and has it on Twitter for everyone to see. So it's pretty impressive. Actually, I met Michael Dunsworth of Wire, W-Y-R-E last week. And the first thing he said when I said I worked for BTC Media or BTC Inc. was, oh, David Bailey, that guy's prices prediction are like the most accurate he just has them pinned on twitter so can't beat that man uh that's kind of the the how i got into everything um the political leanings are i'm i'm all over the map uh you can't pin me down in one category or the other and my uh i feel like i'm consistent with what i believe but uh i'm a, I'm a radical radical moderate and so it's, it's hard to Wait, how did we get into politics? Yeah, I actually meant your crypto crypto politics, but I could have emphasized that better. Well, the crypto politics are, are pretty easy. You know, Bitcoin is the answer and everything else is is interesting and there might be real value created by it, but it's not Bitcoin. Bitcoin is the biggest story in the past probably 20, 30 years. We got Michael Tyberg here saying biggest story ever behind us. Hey, you know what? If it, if it goes the way I think it will, it might be one of the biggest technological advancements ever. It sounds like you have something to say, David. <laughs> I mean, could you, so the general Bitcoin Maximus uh, argument is pretty, I think is pretty easy to come to a, a simple way to, to phrase it. It's basically that money changes shape over time and it's Bitcoin's turn now. And now that we have a global, uh, we have one single global uh, society that's coming as, you know, people can move across continents really easily. We have the internet and so information's coming around easily. And so because of that, there's just going to be one money because money tends to converge. And I'm, I'm assuming that's your thesis as well. Is there anything you'd like to change or add? Uh, yeah, you know, like a, a quite a bit actually. So here's what I would say. If you look at the history of the world, if there is improvement in one sector of the world, 
a lot of times that improvement and the upside and the ability to you know have your life affected by it in a positive way that that is really sequestered and it's it's uh, localized to that economy i mean you look at america today america has the best companies you know the best financial system in the entire world and who can participate in it americans i mean if you're you know a farmer in kenya you can't uh invest in the american stock market you know like and now there's you know some tokenized security type deals that are coming out that might be able to help do that, right? But for the most part, in the history of the world, success has been totally localized. What Bitcoin does, and you kind of touch on this, but Bitcoin unlocks the ability for the entire world to participate in the upside of what is created in the entire world. You know, this is one asset everyone's sitting on and everyone values. And because of that, you know, if someone in... Uh, uh, Uganda has cattle this year that have a crazy output and it's, you know, the best year they've ever had in terms of farming cattle. Everyone actually kind of gets a little bit richer because of their ability to put back into Bitcoin, you know, this value that they've created. So, you know, it, it's far beyond reaching like just one mon monetary sort of allegorical tale. You know, it is, it is an entirely new paradigm that has the ability to lift the entire world to like a new level of financial inclusion and upside. So I think that's dependent on all these like, uh, you know, uh, underprivileged, underbanked, underfinanced people joining onto the Bitcoin bandwagon. So I do agree that that would happen if everyone who doesn't know about crypto and doesn't know about bitcoin if you were if like as an evangelist we would all be able to go to these individuals one at a time saying okay like this is what you can do with bitcoin this is why it's powerful and then here is the app on your phone that lets you in interact with finance and that, if that was somehow magically the case I, I would agree with you but the thing is like bitcoin isn't getting adopted by many and crypto isn't really getting adopted by people that aren't like uh, you know, first world techie pe people. And so even though that Bitcoin, b people will have the option to have the freedom from financial uh, or freedom from being unbanked and access to finance. But it when we talk about the, all the wealth that Bitcoin has created, it's basically gone to, you know, techie, techie white dudes who, you know, were prowling the internet in 2010, 2011. And so I, I think that's possible. What the the scenario you're you're giving out is possible, but I think when we look at actually what's happened, all the money's basically gone to, you know, people people that are very very tech savvy. Don't forget about all the Asians. And, yeah, and yeah, uh -huh, that was a little bit generalizing of me. All right. So counterpoint: Why do you think unbanked people haven't bought Bitcoin yet and haven't interacted with it? Well, maybe they have, but. Does it really like think think about how much value an, an unbanked person has to bring to the network? The more unbanked they are, the more value they actually need in things like commodities that are actually going to because the, the the thing about money is that it really is just a medium between two commodities. So you produce one commodity so you can buy the other. Uh, and so people who need the financial system or people who don't have access to the financial system are people that much more need commodities. And so they're not necessarily storing their value in a bank. They are tr trying to go from commodity to, c to commodity uh, more efficiently. They're a commodity. They're still in the commodity system. Uh, unbanked people are using commodities much more than they're using money. So, uh, uh, you know, valid, valid point, right? But here's a counterpoint is that we are trending towards abundance in the entire world. You know, 
the, the poverty rate, I think in the last 100 years has dropped by 90%. You know, the number of people who are unable to uh, uh, do anything more than subsistence farm and basically go from one commodity to another uh, is dropping daily. I mean, we are moving towards a society in the world, like a global society that people need a way to store value because they don't have to immediately expend everything that they create, right? And uh, uh, how they store that value uh, may vary, but if you have one system for them to do that in, then the entire world gets to participate in the upside of every single piece of value that's created around the world. Yeah, that's totally fair. We are drastically improving as a society, no matter what the news actually tells you. Um, I would like to say that up until recently, uh, stable value as a currency, decentralized permissionless stable value has not really been an option. Uh, so when we talk about the uh, growth of Bitcoin across the world, that's been an experiment that's run without a stable coin like DAI. And so I, I think I think Bitcoiners who say like, oh, Bitcoin is going to be the currency, the financial system, it's it's without it's only under the uh, experiment of not having alternative competitors. Uh, and and DAI as a as a, a stable store of value without a burn and reissue function like all the other stable coins, I think was going to let Bitcoin have a run for its money. What is DAI uh, stable to? The dollar. But it, that actually has a, they, in the future, they have a function to, to change that stability to something uh, like a basket of currencies. Um, to, so that, that process will also be decentralized because away from the U.S. Federal Reserve to something that make, a, make or DAO token voting people uh, will, will elect a, a, a basket of currencies to peg it to. So, uh, I mean, I, I get the fact that you can create a stable coin that's stable to something, right? But like, uh, what would a stable coin that's stable to the S&P 500 look like? It would still be a stable coin and arguably it'd be gaining in value. You know, like, uh, uh, there's, you know, I, I have a lot of issues with stable coins first and like their whole idea of there being like actual uh, measurable stability in uh, a, a system that's constantly in flux. But uh, even beyond that, like currencies are the most manipulated thing in our entire world. We have entire government organizations made to manipulate them uh, for the best betterment of banks and for certain corporations or, you know, whatever sort of special interests are in the ear of these uh, uh, currency manipulators. But like what you want isn't necessarily a point of stability. What you want is a store of value. And those two may not be the same thing. If the dollar starts plunging, if you have some black swan event where, you know, all of these different, uh, uh, all these different currencies around the world are becoming devalued, uh, for whatever reason, maybe it's a huge boom in the stock market. Maybe it's uh, a you know tanking of some of the infrastructure of a country. Maybe two countries go to war. All these different things can affect the value of a currency and can really drastically change uh, the value then of the stable coin that's uh, based on that currency. And you know, I just don't I don't foresee there being a scenario where you have a black swan event with one of these currencies in this basket, or if it's just a dollar, you have this black swan event. And the DAI community is able to come together uh, quick enough to make sure that the DAI doesn't remain stable to that and still remain stable in the long run and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's fair. We, we started off this conversation talking about uh, you know, underprivileged, underfinanced people. And, and so from their point of view, I, I, I have a harder time 
seeing somebody like that uh, being convinced to store their wealth in in Bitcoin when when the alternative is like, okay, well, what do you want to store your wealth in Bitcoin, which went from from two thousand two hundred to twenty thousand to three thousand or die, which is a U.S. dollar equivalent. I think they're going to be like, oh, yeah, the U.S. dollar, because I really trust the U.S. dollar. The Federal Reserve has done a bang up job keeping that stable throughout history. That's that's really what they're going for. Um. I think you're making a lot of assumptions about what underprivileged people want. I think we all are. Yeah, but Definitely. but in general, you know, I agree that there is an opportunity for a more globally and permissionless version of the U.S. dollar in the world today. I think that that's true. I don't think that that means that Dai or any other stablecoin can actually compete with Bitcoin. Um, we already had this kind of conversation with our. MakerDAO versus Bitcoin podcast. And the main point was, yes, MakerDAO is short to medium term stable, but they're trading that for long term fragility, whereas Bitcoin is the opposite. Bitcoin is unstable, but at the same time, very anti-fragile and, you know, hopefully in the long term, much less volatile. Real quick, just to add in too, you know, we're talking about the unbanked and how they're going to interact with this, you know, decentralized system. In, you know, 10 years or even right now, why aren't you storing all your wealth in DAI? Because uh, I'm storing most of my wealth in MKR. Okay. So like some sort of speculative oh, yeah. asset that actually will accrue in value, right? So why wouldn't the underbanked people also want to store all their value in something that they know isn't uh, tied to a deflationary currency? So the ability to take on risk is like a privilege. That's something that you take on after you have mo- all of your bases covered. And so when when food is on the table and and your your shelter and your rent is something that is being threatened, it is not the time to take on a risky asset. So you want to lock in your wealth into a stable asset so that you know you that you will have at the end of the month to pay for your rent to pay for your food so it's stability comes first and then comes speculative investment like the value proposition can be explained to these people like hey you should you know you should always be saving your money you should maybe save your money in something like bitcoin because it tends to grow in value because of its finite supply etc cetera, etc cetera. but that always comes after people start, decide to to uh you know pay for their pay for their food and their health sure so the next adopters aren't going to be people who are subsistence farming. They'll be people who are lower, you know, in the lower class uh, and have a little bit of money they can put aside in some sort of speculative asset. Uh, and in that case, are they going to put it aside in die, or are they going to put it aside in something that's, you know, yes, it's gone from 20,000 to 3,000, but it's also gone from point zero 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 three three cents to twenty thousand dollars so in terms of a, a historical perspective you know this is the best performing asset in the history of the world uh and we can't lose sight of that we also have a very poorly educated population when it comes to finance uh and so i'm kind of worried about you know people people i don't I, that the, i mean you're, what you're saying is a logical thing to say i'm not disagreeing with it uh if you if you have extra money i would i would and you ask me if you should buy bitcoin or just have extra money i would say you should buy bitcoin uh but we ha- we are a very financially illiterate society and that definitely goes even probably even worse to the third world country and so I, it's it's just a long the, the the steps for them to be convinced i think are, are numerous i would agree that yeah it's it's difficult people are financial financially illiterate 
Um, but at the same time, the current system kind of incentivizes that. As Ansel Lindner likes to say, Bitcoin kind of aligns incentives. Bitcoin is a conversation about what money is, and it leads you to educating yourself about sound money and how the economy should work and how it potentially will work in the future. So yes, financial literacy is an issue, but it's getting better. So I don't really know if that's necessarily an argument against Bitcoin. Like, I don't really see that as an argument against Bitcoin. I don't really see that as an argument for or against Maker or Ether or anything like that. But I do want to kind of switch the topic to a more timely topic. Today is what, the 15th of January? the day before the Constantinople hard fork, Mm -hmm. and it looks like it was delayed a little bit. David, uh, can you chime in a little bit with with the update on Ethereum? So the reason why it was delayed was because of numerous updates to the way uh, gas is used for certain smart contracts. Uh, And so what is the EIP? It was, hold on. It was EIP. EIP doesn't have the same ring as BIP. (laughs) EIP-1283 makes some changes to how you interact with smart contracts. Most importantly, it attempts to make some contracts interactions cheaper and or more efficient. Uh, and so my crypto did a pretty good like tweet storm about like what the hell's going on. Uh, and so I'm just going to go through it. Um, the, the first tweet is, the implementation of EIP-1283 was sound. The code is fine. The idea behind it is fine. There is not a bug in the code of this EIP. It does what as is is intended. The potential vulnerability lies at the contract level, not the EVM opcode EIP level. For example, a developer wrote, audited, and tested and deployed a smart contract in the past. It is not possible to exploit the smart contract. The Constantinople update goes live. It is now possible to exploit the smart contract due to changes made in EIP 1283. Now you see the words potentially vulnerable and abundance of caution being used. That is because as of now, there has not been a contract found on Ethereum mainnet or testnets that is vulnerable besides proof of concept ones. And people have been looking hard. So why wasn't this detected sooner? It isn't found by auditing the EIP or GETH or parity. It's found by auditing every existing contract while that contract is on an already updated chain or by researchers imagining what devs could write that uh, could be inadvertently uh, exploitable. What this incident has shown is that the entire stack needs to be analyzed when reviewing EIPs. Existing conditions and contract uh, patterns being used have to be explored. Needs uh, imagination research across all levels, not just technical reviews and audits. Uh, so the final tweet. So while the story of Constantinople, nice, and why FUD doesn't need to, to spread. Uh, yes, it would be nice to catch it earlier, but the process for dealing with these bugs will improve as a result and nobody lost funds. Thank you to chain underscore security on Twitter and everyone else who researches. So that's the story of the EIP bug. Let me jump in here and say, and predicate all of this by saying, I love what ETH has done. It's, you know, moved this entire industry further. It has brought new life and new and, you know, ingenuity and people who are interested in blockchain technology into this space. Incredible work. ETH is, it's, it's not going to ever be able to like fundamentally scale. The reason being it has a smart contract platform at its base level. And in order to make improvements on that smart contract level, you are potentially in introducing vulnerabilities to the base layer of this protocol. I mean, it, it's like, it's not like this protocol is only worth, uh, you know, a million dollars in market cap. This thing is worth 
billions. There's billions of dollars on the line every time they introduce a new line of code. And that's why, you know, when you see even these sort of benign changes or potentially benign changes that kind of gravitate towards scaling, they are often catastrophic because there's just so much different language in this base protocol that can go wrong. The base, I want to separate the EVM and the base protocol. And I'm not a developer, so I might actually get this wrong. But if you have a bug in a smart contract or if there's an issue in the way that an EVM code is set up so that, you know, the the all the, the uh, solidity functions mess something up, that doesn't change the base code. And so if you just want to send Ether from, from me to you, you don't need the, the EVM. Uh, or you need a very simplistic function that uh, is, is so easy that it will never, ever be bugged. And so like the, the idea that like you can have a contract that you use that fucks up everything about Ethereum, that's just not possible. Right, right. But this, this EEP, EIP, I guess we'll call it uh -huh. an EEP, Eep. Uh, this was done at a protocol level, right? No, it's for some kinds of contracts that have some specific vulnerability or, or would have some specific vulnerability upon uh, the, the Constantinople update. So some contracts would have uh, a new vulnerability that they didn't have before. Right. But this is this improvement wasn't done at a protocol level. I, I think it was right. Like an EIP, just like a BIP, like these are uh -huh. improvements that are done to the Ethereum protocol itself. And like the language gets changed and, mm -hmm. you know, how a transaction is validated or whatever it is. And like these improvements then have to also be uh, compatible with whatever is built on top of that in like the smart contracting language and all of that. Right. Uh, I mean, it's the same thing with a BIP, right? I'm, I'm, I'm just assuming. I'm, yeah. I could be wrong. You're probably right. We could fact check this and I'm 100% wrong. But my point is, is that ETH is not scaled yet, right? And because it is not scaled, like there has to be a lot of changes to this fundamental level because that's where they're scaling it, right? It's a layer one scaling issue that they're having. And so when you have billions of dollars on the line, it makes it next to impossible to actually try and implement something new because especially when you have all this complicated language around it with all these smart contracts that have to be compatible, like you never know when you're gonna be introducing a vulnerability. It's the same thing for Bitcoin. It's why Bitcoin is doing layered scaling. They got SegWit in there, now they have Lightning. Now they can start scaling on a different level where the, the inherent risk isn't quite as large because they're not changing the protocol level. Uh, and so that's one of the reasons why, I, you know, personally, I don't think Ethereum's ever going to get proof of stake. I don't think Ethereum's ever going to get sharding. I don't think it's ever going to get geth tree pruning. I don't think it's going to get these kind of improvements because the risk is too great with all the different smart contracts built on top of it that like they they can't afford to in, introduce something that's going to, you know, take Augur offline or take uh, uh insert consensus project here uh, and make it- uh, USD coin. Yeah, USD coin, sure, whatever it is. Like uh, uh, there's too much risk. And so I think what we're gonna see is that, and again, like uh, kudos to Vitalik. I know the guy, he's a brilliant, brilliant guy. Uh, he, what he created is lightning in a bottle. But uh, fortunately that lightning can actually be forked and, uh, and can be created into more scaled protocols from the get go that people can then look at and figure out how to build on top of and uh, and improve on. And so, you know, I'm not gonna come here and then say like, oh, the next coin's gonna be EOS or, you know, whatever. That's, I don't know what is gonna end up happening. I personally can see a lot of ways that Bitcoin takes that mantle from them. 
but uh, I am worried that the scaling that needs to happen to Ethereum may never be able to happen. And this is like case in point right here. One of my favorite analogies came from Amin Soleimani when we had him on, on the episode. And he was like, when Christian actually asked him about Turing complete code and the difficulties behind that. And he goes, um, I think it's going to be something like the steam engine where it blows up for a few first few times and then it just works. And I really like your lightning in a bottle uh, analogy because I was actually going to go to the concept of like electricity. Electricity, like fire, we it was totally unharnessable for a while. And then we got smarter and then we figured out how to harness it. But meanwhile, like a lot of people got electrocuted and shocked. And now it's in everyone's home, empowering basically everything. And everything that was like gas is now being electricity. And it was this very volatile, un, unharnessable resource, literally power. Um, and then, and then now it's, now it's basically doing everything. Uh, and so like we're, we're learning, we're kind of feeling around in the, in the dark when it comes to Turing complete code, that's also immutable. Cause that's pretty scary and dangerous, but to, to say that it's because it's like that is can't be adopted is, is, I don't see that pattern happening in previous examples of human history, trying to control some extremely volatile thing. currencies fiat currencies value by decree loses its monetary confidence right so over time as they tinker with the supply as they tinker with this as they tinker with that they diminish and destroy the monetary confidence of that currency this is why ethereum cannot compete with bitcoin because ethereum is tinkering and they could tinker correctly but they can tinker incorrectly and every time there's an incorrect tinker, that puts it two, three, four, ten steps backwards. It isolates people and it takes away from monetary confidence. All the while, Bitcoin is just marching on. So while you can argue that, hey, we can harness Turing completeness, you can also harness Turing completeness on something else, right? Your computer and a lot of other code and stuff like that is Turing complete, right? So... I, I just think that people kind of get caught up in this buzzword of smart contract platform and, you know, they're following along with voting on the blockchain and stuff like that, uh, embracing hard forks, and they're really losing the fact of what is money, how does money get created, and how is money competitive. Christian, you talked about um, Ethereum and how it's changing its monetary policy and it's changing the issuance and, and everything. And every time every time that happens, that detracts from the belief that Ether is money. It can detract. It can detract. Theoretically, it detracts from that. And that, and I do and I do believe there is some value to to things that do not change very quickly, and especially when it comes to money. But but this is actually kind of one of my favorite topics to to compare the differences between Bitcoin and Ethereum because Bitcoiners' biggest criticism about Ethereum all tend to treat ethereum as if it as if it's in its final form and then and uh brandon you you said like you don't ever think that Ethereum's ever going to get to proof of stake and so you know fair there's execution risk um but when we talk about ether ethereum as it is designed to be in its final form the issuance rate of of ether becomes uh really really attractive especially when it, when compared to bitcoin whereas bitcoin has this 21 million finite supply limit uh, Ethereum's removed the need to have a finite supply limit by allowing anyone, any and everyone to participate in network validation and also supply inflation. And so like one, one way to remove 
the need to take away the uh, privileged right of supply issuances like like Bitcoin did with the federal government. Like, no, federal government, you don't get to print new Bitcoins. There's only 21 million hard cap. Ethereum is saying, okay, everyone can mint new Ether. And it's done by this dynamic rate that keeps inflation really, really low and stable. And so when that comes, and since because crypto is so small, like we have to be less than 0.1% of total global population. I, I, mean, I just pulled that number out of my butt. Maybe somebody can, can back me up on and find a more accurate number. But when when uh, the, the time for crypto to actually come and actually proliferate uh, around the world and when we hit that really steep angle on the S-curve adoption, if Ethereum is indeed in its proof of stake sharding, uh, serenity form i think that that's really this the side of ethereum you need to be comparing bitcoin to um you know and then and then qualifying that with execution risk so diving really quick into proof of stake and how it's a more fair egalitarian way of and potentially uh, more secure. you know minting new coins what would you say like to someone who says watch out for joe lubin or anthony diorio or vitalik to just stake all their coins and now they get the rich get richer at a faster rate. No, it's equal. It's everyone who stakes receives an equal uh, amount of uh, the the issuance of Ether. Regardless of how much they stake? Yes. I didn't know that. This is news to me. Can you explain that? Yeah, so every every 32... I mean, so, so I mean, it's proportional. So somebody who, re- who stakes 3,200 Ether will receive 10 times more than somebody that stakes... 320 who receives 10 times more than somebody who takes 32 but it's all it's all proportional okay we're on the same page we're on the same page yeah that, that's what uh-huh. i was talking about so, yeah so they get richer so joe lubin's going to be getting a lot more eth from every uh new block that's mined than you know dinky old me who can stake you know a few eth here and there uh what do you say to you know there's there's so much we talk about in society today of you know, wealth inequality and the rich always get richer and the poor don't get rich as fast. And there's this great income disparity and all of that. And this seems to me like a, an exact system basically created to perpetuate that, right? The people who were in Ethereum from the beginning, who were very wealthy, now get Ethereum at a rate faster than the average Joe Schmo who's trying to, you know, make a little money here. Well, my question to you is how much Bitcoin are you getting? from the issuance of bitcoin none uh true it's none but i'm also not mining and i'm also you know you know mining is this proof of work it's like it's it's bringing in uh a a valuable service to the system and how much value you are bringing into the system is proportional to how much money you receive. You know these. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Just what you just said. How much value are you you bringing into the system? Is how is proportional to what you receive? Is literally what proof of stake is. You are staking your value and receiving proportional dividends. Well, but how? Like, what is more valuable? You staking ten coins in your node, or are you staking one coin? Well, ten coins, and they are allowed to process ten times as much transactions, and they're bringing ten times the the processing to Ethereum. So there are fundamental differences between proof of stake and proof of work. The main one is that proof of work does not allow you to indefinitely accumulate. So you just can't compare because proof of work has a constant expense on those who are validating. So that way, all the money they bring in, much of that must come out and be paid for other services. So whereas proof of stake is completely different, the amount of value that you stake 
is also being accumulated upon and you're never actually forced to distribute that value. You're never actually forced uh, to allow that value to enter into the market. Well, yeah, but if you never, if you never ever enter into the market, then you never ever get to cash out of the, of that value. Right. That's what we're saying is that people who are mining have to enter it to the market because they have to pay for power and they have to pay for rent and they have to pay for miners and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, but the, so then then people can buy it. Yeah, but then you know it's it's like it's kind of a yin and a yang because like. Because then the small fry, the person that's still staking like, you know, less than 100 Ether, he's at least they get to participate and help because they're still helping. They are still benefiting the Ethereum ecosystem. And on the Bitcoin side of things, okay, you can buy Bitcoin from a miner who's selling it to you at the market rate and that price is down because Bitcoin, because Bitcoin miners are selling it and there's sell pressure from that. Like, I'm not sure where where the small fry gets to gets to partake in in the upside of things. Uh, this is kind of this is jumping into a different subject. What I I, I want to kind of because uh, I, I have a few problems with proof of stake, and this is a different one. But um, my main thing that I'm trying to say though is that the people who are mining are like expending power to mine Bitcoin and providing security in order to do that and decentralizing it, et cetera, et cetera. And that's like a, a service that they are taxed on with the power cost. And the power cost generally is razor thin in comparison to the money that they get from it, right? And so it's not like they, uh, every block they get, they're getting 12.5 Bitcoin and they're just turning that into new miners. No, generally they're turning that into power in order for them to run their miners in the first place. Uh, whereas with proof of stake, Joe Lubin is gonna get, you know, richer at an increasing rate uh or at least you know assuming everyone isn't staking which is like an entirely other uh issue mm -hmm. you know why would everyone not be staking all of their eth and then it doesn't even move and then you have one black swan event where joe lubin's like all right screw this i'm gonna sell all my eth or i'm gonna stop staking all my eth the network security drops by some huge percent the market gets flooded by all of these stake tokens that he's had and like he basically exits uh which you know, it's an entirely other black swan event that you know, we don't have to get into. But like, the the point that I'm saying is that proof of stake builds a uh, increasingly disparity, like increasing disparity in terms of wealthy and non-wealthy, and in a model that creates a house of cards where the greatest fool, the last one staking, loses. And so there will be, I I believe or I theorize that there would be, there would be some sort of black swan event. That would cause everyone to stop staking at once and get out uh, and and just totally remove any risk they have on the table. Well, okay, so there's a dynamic uh, issuance when it comes to staking that is kind of similar to the how Bitcoin doesn't ever have a death spiral. And so the less uh, Bitcoiners are mining the Bitcoin blockchain, the more uh, Bitcoin, the more the remaining Bitcoin miners are receiving uh, Bitcoins because of the reduced competition. Well, that, that same dynamic will exist in proof of stake. Whereas if everyone is staking, then people are receiving not very much ether. And the, as people uh, leave the staking network, the, the per person per staker uh, issuance goes up and up and up. Uh, and so I, I see that model being very anti-fragile in, in both accounts. But when they leave their staking position, they've also just flooded the market with all the ETH that they were staking. There's no other reason for them to leave if not to sell, because otherwise they're just going to keep accumulating. Well, once they sell, they can't accumulate anymore. 
It's like it's it's like one. So this is like the uh, the positive feedback loop I always talk about with like with uh, Ethereum, where Ethereum you could represent like Ethereum as a as a speaker with a microphone right in front of it, and as soon as the economy inside of Ethereum, the signal coming out of the speaker hits the microphone, there's enough signal for that to turn into a positive feedback loop, which will always keep the incentive to stake strong, um, because because Ether will need to be doing things in this economy that's sending out a signal. So that that's kind of the how I see the Black Swan event not ever happening. What do you think Ethereum and Ethereum community need to do? to make ETH into more sound money than Bitcoin? Get to proof of stake. Like one, once Ethereum is in serenity, in my opinion, the game is over. What does it mean to get into proof of stake? Have the dynamic supply issuance model that I just talked about, um, have pretty much li- unlimited overhead when it comes to um, ga- transactions because of sharding, uh, and then uh, enable people with 32 ETH or more to stake themselves and people with less than 32 ETH to use a staking pool. If I own ETH and proof of stake exists, mm-hmm. why would I not stake all the ETH I own? Well, if you have a lot, you have to stake 32 ETH. Like if you can't stake, if, if Drew Lubin can't stake all of his ETH on one node, it's just not possible. It, it won't, he won't be able to, to use it. He'll still, he'll have a bunch of nodes he'll have to do. Um, you will probably do something like stake 80% of your ETH and then have 20% for activities like, you know, betting on Augur or Gods Unchained or some, some thing. That's kind of the, the model I see happening. But I'll use rep to bet on Augur right no you use eth or die to bet on auger you use rep to report on auger uh so those will be the only ways to bet on auger is either eth or die uh in the roadmap yes so i'll use die to bet on auger yes which currently is ether yeah die is like distilled ether what is my gain like why would anyone stop staking their eth in order to participate in auger market well, for, for okay, so the, so the, I have like this this mental model where there's like this tug of war between three things: uh, the reason, the incentive to stake ether, the incentive to stake your ether in other things, and then the price of ether to sell it. Uh, and so you can lock up your ether in MakerDAO and get a decentralized, uh, permissionless, very low interest loan. You can lock up your ether in Uniswap, and then you can get the uh, arbitrage fees that are autom- algorithmically produced by the Uniswap exchange. Uh, you can stake, like, put your bet ether into Augur and kind of stake it in a sense because you're you're gambling over time. Um, there's that there's that one website, uh, what's it called, uh, that where it shows all the ether that's locked up in decentralized finance. They, all of these tools like Augur and MakerDAO and uh, Compound and uh, Uniswap and uh, DYDX. There are all of these tools have an incentive for people to come and use them and stake ether inside of them because that's how you use it. And so all of these tools with Ethereum proof of stake are going to have this yin and yang, this tug of war between each other. It's like, I have this service for you. You can use it if you come put your ether in me. And then Augur's like, I have this gambling platform for you. You can use it if you come and stake your ether inside of me. And then Ether's like, well, we have this service. We have this validation service we need you to do. Come use your ether inside of this validation service. We'll pay you this amount of much. And it's just like how there's like a, a equilibrium between miners mining the blockchain. There's this equilibrium between the value produced by all these decentralized applications and the value you are able to receive from them versus how much ether is going to be staked in them. All right. So first of all, that all sounds really kinky. But second of all, uh, <laughs> the 
what I what I'm picturing though is like if it does not take a lot of complicated math, and I'm sure there's a website somewhere that'll just go out and like delineate exactly how much more money you would make, how much more ETH you would make staking it into Dai versus if you're just staking it on proof of stake, right? And if it, you know, you get a little bit more money by staking it into Dai, everyone's gonna stake it into Dai. And if you get a little bit more money staking it, well, it's that's a speculative thing. So like you, you would go and and put your ether in a CDP and get die, so you can go do something with that. And if that provides you value, because you need like, say you have like a you get a thirty thousand dollar loan in from MakerDAO, so you can go buy a car. That's something that's valuable to you. And you, you as an individual, would have to balance that out with the value you could have gotten from not putting that ether in a CDP and staking it on Ethereum. Let's say in this uh, magical universe of serenity that Ethereum is ubiquitous. Everyone has Ethereum. They all have to own Ethereum. Why would they even need to use DAI? For stability. How volatile do you think Ethereum is going to be? I think crypto will always be volatile, except for DAI. That, That seems very assumptive. Um, gold has had pretty stable buying power for a long time. Well, for all of crypto's existence, it's always been volatile. So one of the things I like to do is is look at what's actually going on and extrapolate that into the future. And so one thing we see going on is that a significant amount of Ether is being staked. So there's 18 percent, 18, there's, uh, what is the metric? 10, uh, it's like 66% of all newly minted ether, not specifically that ether, but the amount of that ether is getting also getting locked up and staked into decentralized finance. So we see this very clear staking force. So that's one thing that we can see until that trend reverses, we are going to see a continuous amount of ether being staked until the trend of crypto always being volatile reverses. I think we should assume that crypto will be volatile. Uh, there's like, I don't think stable coins are going to be obsolete. Uh, the crypto global markets will always have buyers and sellers because of its global nature and because it's 24 seven, uh, market times, it's always going to have people buying and selling tokens based on speculation. And I do agree that it will become less volatile in the future, but I see, I compare it to the stock market compared to bond markets compared to basically every other market. I think crypto will always be the most volatile. So 24 hour selling and buying actually makes something more stable because there's mm. less room for um you know market that's true that's true i guess interferences whereas pretty much every other regulated market today is not like that um second your assumption about uh the trend of ether uh being staked as continuing also discounts the fact that ether is currently proof of work ether is successful because proof of work and if you take that away, then you are throwing, you know, a huge rock onto glass, in my opinion. You're also providing a huge staking mechanism. You're, you're removing one non-staking mechanism and adding it with a very, very big one. Yeah, so, you know, I, I don't think we're going to see eye to eye to this. I don't think we're going to see eye to eye even on nope. <laughs> you're thinking the uh, crypto is always going to be volatile because, you know, my belief is that Bitcoin is going to be, you know, the underlying store of value for the entire world and that everything is only volatile in reference to Bitcoin and like, you know, it, it flips somewhere along the way. Um, but I do want to, you know, before, before we kind of wrap it all up, I, I want to uh, go ahead and give a, a little bold prediction of, of how I see this market going because uh, yeah, go for it. I think what we're looking at right now 
uh, and today's what, January 15th? I think we are looking at uh, the bottom. Like we've now hit the bottom for Bitcoin. Um, I'm not confident in saying the entire market has hit bottom. Uh, I think look at, uh, you know, look at some of these ICOs that could go another 99% down and, uh, and they'd still be probably overvalued. Um, but what I do see is, you know, Bitcoin's 10 years old. We've now watched it go through this bubble two other times. Um, and some of the things that you have to watch at, watch for is I think it went from, it went from, uh, like 30 cents all the way up to $32 down to $2. And then it went from $2 all the way up to $250. Or no, it went from $2 all the way up to $1,200. And then back down to $250. And now it's gone from $250 all the way up to $20,000. Back down to $3K, right? And that when it hit 31-ish, you know, that, that right around there is the bottom. And if you look at the percentage change with those, uh, it's been pretty consistent that it kind of 100Xs or around 100X, 60 to 100X, and then it drops to basically the uh, double what the high was before or something like that. You know, I'm, I'm speaking without looking at anything. Um, so if you look at where we are percentage-wise drop, you know, I think from like, and maybe 19K isn't the peak, just like, you know, 12K or 1200 may not have been the peak. Maybe it was like a thousand. And, and you kind of measure it out. We are now at a point where we have gone a percentage drop somewhere around, like, I don't know, I haven't looked at it, 80, 80, 84%. I couldn't tell you exactly the number, but well within the range of looking at other past price movements and where they've gone and and we're right on par. Um, there's a lot of interesting things going on right now for Bitcoin uh, when you look at what Lightning's been able to do. Uh, I think last I saw Lightning had like over 250 Bitcoin staked now, which is, I mean, an incredible amount considering that it was at like one Bitcoin like six months ago or something around that. Like, I mean, it's, it's, it's taking off like crazy, which, you know, is to be expected, but it's exciting nonetheless. And so, uh, you see that scaling mechanism actually come into play. You see things like backed, which, you know, everyone's now kind of starting to joke that, you know, backed is only two months away, you know, and they're going to launch any time now. Well, you know, you look at the government shutdown and that's actually delayed a lot of their ability to get, uh, uh, some of their regulatory, uh, paperwork signed off because those people aren't getting paid right now by the government. So uh, you've got that going, you've got all these ETFs, and I'm not saying any of them have to happen in order for this market to heat back up. In fact, I don't think any one of these things is gonna cause us to go into the next bull market. I think what ca- all they do is they just give us a new ceiling for uh, how high the next bull market can go and who all can participate. And so the really, the thing that is underlying uh, affecting all of this price movement is simply supply and demand. And what we see is a constantly growing demand. Uh, the demand today is greater than the demand was a year ago today, even though the price is, uh, you know, 
60, 70% lower, right? Uh, and the reason is, is that, uh, sorry, uh, the reason why, you know, I'm, I'm getting bullish right now is that uh, 3K is a really easy level to hold when it you look at how much money needs to come in every day to support the uh, Bitcoin mining sell side demand or sell side pressure, right? So $3,000 Bitcoin means that mining, you can take $3,000 and spend it on Bitcoin, right? In order to mine a Bitcoin. So take that times 12.5 Bitcoins per block times 10 block or a block every 10 minutes times, uh, you know, six 10 minute blocks in an hour times 24 hours. And you come to some number around like uh, uh, 10K or 10 million, let's say. So 10 million every day needs to be created and or needs to bring come into the uh, system in order to support the the price. That is a uh, an incredibly easy target considering how many people are now involved uh, in in the system. I think we're estimating like what maybe 10 million people uh, own Bitcoin right now. Uh, who knows? But like that means a dollar a day per person coming in new, uh, and that keeps the price steady, right? And so now you're looking at what's the next big thing to affect supply and demand. And that's the happening, which happens in 2020. And if you want to look at the happening that happened in 2016, you saw actually a bull market going into that happening. It probably went up from like 250 to like 600 uh, just in that time frame from when it hit bottom to when it went into you know the next happening. And then you saw a lag period where this back end liquidity dried up. And that launched us into the 2017 bull market. Yeah. So actually, want to I want to cut in here real quick. Uh, so how much of the 2017 bull market uh, proportionally was led by Bitcoin versus led by ETH? Like, like on a one to one hundred scale, where if you like 60, 40 Bitcoin, Ether, or 70, 30, or 99, one. So I would say. Uh, the Bitcoin bull market was led by Bitcoin. I mean, all of the cryptocurrency, the, the cryptocurrency market cap, regardless of the, what I would is, say how the crypto market. Um, I mean, you can just look at how the market cap grew, right? Like Bitcoin went from 85% dominance down to 54, 50%, let's say, okay, 50 three what or at one point it, it went 35. down sorry yeah. sorry i'm looking at where it is now yeah it went down to like the the mid 30s right so that i would say right there uh it was probably like a 50 percent of the total uh uh total like gain and then the rest of it was all eth right because mm -hmm. you had all of this money pouring in to eth and to these icos and uh yeah i mean eth totally was a big part of the the bull market I don't think ETH and that ICO craze uh, positively affected the Bitcoin price really in any way because the demand wasn't for Bitcoin in order to participate. The demand was for ETH and people had Coinbase and they could buy ETH directly. So it's not like they had to go through Bitcoin in order to get to ETH and they couldn't really participate with Bitcoin anyways. So like, I don't see that market as having a huge impact on Bitcoin's uh, uh Bitcoin's price anywhere through there, I think the two kind of coincided really well together. If anything, Bitcoin and its rise led to publicity for ETH and some of these ICOs that were going on at the same time. And then those ICOs got a whole bunch of craze because they were filling up so quickly and raising so much money so quickly and people were getting rich like crazy off of them, which then fed the hysteria for people wanting to get into them. 
But like, I can't tell you how many friends of mine uh, uh, actually participate in an ICO. It wasn't a lot. And like, I'm talking about friends of mine who aren't in crypto. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, wh- why I wanted to bring that up is, is the, and this is, we've only seen this for a very short amount of time. But if you look at the Ether versus Bitcoin chart, it looks like the Bitcoin versus dollar chart. Whereas it has the like r- ridiculous growth and then the retracing and then the ridiculous growth and the retracing. Uh, and so one of those, that's one of the patterns that I'm looking for is like until that trend st- starts to reverse, I'm going to be on the side of the trend. Uh, and I would argue every single ICO has that exact same chart versus Bitcoin. They all exploded against its price in 2017 and 2018, early 2018, and now they've all retracted. Yeah, but this chart started in 2015. Right. Uh, but has it gone through another boom and bust cycle against Bitcoin? The the last mark cryptocurrency market cycle was the boom bust cycle where we are currently in a bust. And Right. So it's happened once, right? Three times. ETH versus Bitcoin? Yeah. Okay. Yo, but, but ETH has done that in one macro cycle, right? So this is the back end of that macro cycle. It started in 2015. It's three years old. Right. So this is the first time. So, yeah, it's had its own mini cycles against Bitcoin. But in terms of a macro cycle, bearable market for Bitcoin is never done that before. And it's never actually done it in a negative potential uh, U.S. equities market. So, uh, again, I get we're all trying to make these price predictions. We're all making tons of assumptions. But I just wanted to point that out. Like, you know, you're just picking up on one trend. But yeah. So, I mean, uh you are right in that ETH has performed well against Bitcoin. You know, if you got in ETH early, uh, you got a lot of Bitcoin nowadays if you wanted to, you know, liquidate even now. Uh, but the the what leads the market, and I'm sure you agree with this, what leads the market, the real king of everything, the, the reason why this entire market has value in the first place, and what most institutional investors are excited about and will be participating in, is Bitcoin. The rest of it is uh, exciting and it has huge potential and they, you know, it may totally change the way business and life is, is had in the world, right? But it's all predicated on the success of Bitcoin, which you may not agree with, but I, I believe it's all predicated on that success. I think 2017 was, was Ether. That was, I think Ether led the market in 2017 much more than people give credit for. Uh, it, it brought the most amount of people to the space in one go. Uh, and I do have to give credit where credit is due, where Bitcoin is really doing a lot of work for other token protocols, other crypto protocols. And it's making adoption of everything else like much, much easier. And I think that there's some valid thing to say about Bitcoin's uh, first through the door where like, you know, you have a, a Marine squad, four of them lined up trying to go through the door and Bitcoin goes first and gets shot and everyone else goes in and clears the room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see what you're saying. I will say, though, uh, Bitcoin 20x, I think a little bit more than 20x in 2017. I'm not sure what ETH did, but I can't imagine it was a lot more. Do you know off the top of your head? Uh, no, no, I don't. It went from it went from like from 2016 to 20 uh, to the peak at $1,400. It was like it depends on where you count it, but it was like 20 to $40 up to $1,400. It, it did better. Um, we are in Michael Tyberg's room. You guys may have heard of Michael Tyberg, episode number ten. 
Michael has been freaking jumping up and down, <laughs> hearing David trigger him with uh, with this East stuff. I'm sorry that a bunch of us Bitcoiners are bullying you today. You're yeah, freaking I'm outnumbered sport. right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, but Michael has something to say here. Hey, what's up, guys? Uh, so I did just want to interject with like one quick, um, just like not not there's no really argument here, but it's just a point. Um, I'm sure that we can all agree on this to some extent. But so as Brandon was saying, you know, everything started with Bitcoin. Um, just a quick look at how Bitcoin was started. It was started, um, you know, from a white paper and grassroots uh, interest in something that was needed in the form of, you know, a new monetary uh, system. And, you know, Bitcoin took that form. So that's just how Bitcoin started. Right. Uh, and it introduced this awesome technology called blockchain. And Bitcoin has this awesome quality that's, uh, you know, it's called open source. So um, it's peer reviewed and it's not something that uh you know, one company controls. The reason why I emphasize that is because, uh, and the reason why I wanted to jump in is because you guys are talking about ETH leading the market, and I would argue that, well, I guess this is just my take on it. Uh, Bitcoin obviously brought everything uh, to where it is today, and the quality that I mentioned, which is, you know, the fact that it's open sourced and it's something that is easy to copy, and, you know, everything is in this space. Um, I think that there's something to acknowledge in terms of uh, the psychology of how humans behave and especially the part that plays into uh, the, their greedy side. And perhaps the ICO market and Ethereum was the only, the only reason Ethereum was part of that was because it was, uh, don't get me wrong, Ethereum is revolutionary, but what it showed people that they could do is that they can easily, instead of focusing on something that is hard to accept if you didn't get in too early and it's you know tough to face if you're missing out so to speak uh they may have realized that through ethereum it's much more marketable and easier and a lot less effort and much more profitable most importantly to uh be able to make something out of thin air uh meaning you know icos aren't uh bootstrapped by miners that use <clears throat> that use electricity they're not uh they're basically uh, artificial money, and it's the problem with our current monetary system today. So I would argue that the Ethereum bull market, if it was Ethereum that drove it, was due to people being greedy and using Ethereum uh, as the vehicle to basically get their money into a space where they could just bet on basically things that were easy to uh, be hopeful about. So on on the other side of the crazy ICO mania, it's it's I, I totally agree with you. It, you know the 2017 ICO bubble was just insane and greedy and uh, you know uh, dishonest at best. But then at the same time, a lot of projects were really leveraging the imagination of these people. And you know we don't really know what a token is. And turns out token models like basic attention token are probably not good. And and now that we're on the other side of things, we really know how to evaluate token economics better. Uh, but there was something very real in the in the way that ICOs are, or and there is something very real in the way that ICOs can be conducted. And that that is because what Bitcoin did can never be reproduced. Like we can never have organic growth from, from the Genesis block brought, brought on by a bunch of distributed open source developers. And so the, the ICO model is this new model to immediately diversify the holder of tokens and to provide, you know, funding to really get the projects up and running. Uh, and, and it's, it's, well, a lot of people uh, shit on the ICO model 
and say like, oh, you should just start it like Monero or start it like Bitcoin. It's not possible anymore. Like there, it has, there has to be a bootstrapping of network effects using an ICO where an ICO can gain hype and, uh, you know, spread its content and, and diversify the funds. Because if you just have, if you just do a, a Bitcoin model now, then you're just going to get yelled at for doing a pre-mine. Uh, and so an ICO is a way to, to provide early network supply of value so it can get built out quickly and, 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 and rapidly. I totally hear you on, on that. And, you know, one thing I'd like to add, though, is that perhaps um, there are maybe some, you know, it is January 15th and we are talking about the grassroots movement. Um, so I'd like to just throw out that green uh, grin, sorry, a implementation of Mimblewimble that most people listening to may have heard of uh, to some degree was live today and was um, organized completely uh, without any ICO or anything uh, of that measure. The the one thing I do want to address though, David, is that you're you're talking about how ICOs were a great way to distribute tokens to a bunch of people. It can be. I'm sorry. It can be. Like many many ICOs did not do that, but it could be theoretically. And so the good ICOs like Augur and Zero X and Omise Go did a great job of distributing funds. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I hear you on that. Uh, I I still think, and I don't know the exact numbers of the ones you just mentioned, such as Augur and Omise Go, but I, I'm just going to include more than just those projects in there, but. Uh, I believe that the majority of the tokens that are held by um, those, uh, like the people who started those projects, or the majority of the tokens are in the hands of the people who are still the founders and whatnot. And I don't know if it's as, I mean, the thing is the counter to this is very valid in Bitcoin. It's still very mm -hmm. centralized in terms of token holding. So it's still valid um, both ways. But the one thing I did want to mention earlier, and it, it relates to this because of how, I, quote unquote, maybe broken the model is, ICOs, um, the the technical chart for ethereum a lot of you know day traders might say um if they take a look at it today or like people who understand technical analysis may or may not say that it is broken in the sense that it looks like uh you know icos and whatnot um kind of it, yeah, I don't really know that. Yeah, I'm gonna cut this off. All right, we're going way over time here, and yeah. and yeah, yeah. I think let's let's just let uh, Brandon finish his thought, and then we we're gonna wrap this one up. Yeah, that sounds great. So so let me end with this. All right, Bitcoin is either a store of value or it's not, and if it is a store of value, then there is not no mechanism that prevents Bitcoin from being the store of value where one Bitcoin is one twenty-one millionth of the entire value of the entire world. And because, you know, every single day that Bitcoin exists, it is more and more likely to acquire that store of value standpoint. Everything that's been done by ETH or by any other project out there can be done on Bitcoin as well. The first ICO that was ever done was done on Bitcoin. It was MasterCoin. It happened on Bitcoin. People sent Bitcoin in order to get MasterCoin. So all of these things that we're talking about that Ethereum really made uh, public and, and accessible can be done and will be done by Bitcoin itself. And so from that perspective, I don't foresee a way that Ethereum or any other token becomes more valuable than Bitcoin because what Bitcoin has in terms of its decentralized mining, in terms of its, uh, you know, there's no single point of failure. There's no Vitalik Buterin who could get assassinated. Vitalik is not a single point of failure. I reject that. All right. But Vitalik, if Vitalik says, I want X, Y, or Z to happen, 
you know the community very yeah because it's a good idea like it's always a good idea direction and metallic once came out it can be it, it's not always a good idea but and he said that too he said he's had some bad ideas in the process but vitalik once said online that if you know the russian government or whoever was going to grab him and hold a, a gun to his head and tell him to say something about you know ethereum that he would say it you know it's it, the there's and there's joe lubin there's Anthony, I mean, there's, there's all these founders who become, in essence, single points of failure or at least single points of high tumult in these uh, in the industry. And like, yeah, because it's hidden because the, the centralization factors in, in Bitcoin are hidden from the surface. And so the centralization of Chinese miners, it, we don't really know that 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 they're a single point of failure because we don't know who they are, but they still are like they're just they're It's the same amount of risk. It's just hidden from view. I would argue that Bitcoin is the most decentralized token out there. It is the most decentralized blockchain we have. And, uh, and you know, you have to give credit where credit is due. Like, no one can beat Bitcoin on, you know, the security of the blockchain, of the lack of single points of failure, and of its ability to implement any other technological change that's been created by any other project. It can do it all, and it's also one of the most scaled networks at this point with this Layer 2 scaling and Lightning Network and all of that. So I just want to I want to end on that kind of note that, you know, there's been a lot of innovation that has happened in this, in this uh, economy, and uh, all of it, Bitcoin will be able to reap the rewards of. And ultimately, there really only needs to be uh, one store of value uh, in this space. And I think that's going to be Bitcoin. We will definitely be able to have a repeat. <laughs> Sounds great. Looking forward to it. This is our longest podcast ever. This one got a little got a little feisty. got a little out of hand. I'm glad we had it. David, you are a freaking good sport. You're a champ. Yeah, you definitely got berated here. Um, but, uh, you know, I think you held your own pretty well. Brandon, thank you for coming on the show. Where can people find you? What do you want to tell our audience? Uh, yeah. You know, find me on Bitcoin Magazine. Uh, find me on Twitter. I'm at distbrandon, D-I-S-T-B-R-A-N-D-O-N. Uh, always happy to tweet you back. You can find the show at POV CryptoPod. You can find me, Christian, CK underscore Snarks. David, where can people find you? at trustless state both on medium and on twitter our ledger x giveaway is still happening so you can send an email to david a.hoffman at yahoo.com with a screenshot of you reviewing us on itunes doesn't matter what stars but you know what number we want uh and then also if you retweet the episode coming out of the twitter uh the pov crypto twitter you will get uh, credits towards getting the Ledger X as well. And then we also have $30 worth of Bitcoin Ether or Die or your crypto of choice to be sent to the second person, second place. You guys, the Ledger X arrived at my home in San Francisco. It is on-premise confirmed. It could be one of yours. Freaking review the show. Grab your girlfriend's phone. Grab your boyfriend's phone. Review the show. Go to POV Crypto Pod. Scroll down to the bottom. Let's go. All right, bye everyone. If not this true, then you might as well tell a lie. If lies are 
Will you just see?